I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Tink. Lauren Passell and her innovative PR company, Tink, are book-obsessed and podcast-obsessed. Tink specializes in getting authors on podcast tours. Forbes called it the, quote, the first podcast PR company for authors. This is like the coolest idea, I have to say. Podcasting is a new wild world, and pitching to podcasters like me, I guess, is an art. So Tink specializes in setting authors up for success. To learn more, you can visit tinkmedia.com or subscribe to Lauren's podcast newsletter at podcastthenewsletter.com. So definitely check out Lauren. She's amazing. And for any authors out there, you should definitely check her out for getting your book onto fantastic podcasts like this one and so many other book podcasts out there and all types of podcasts. I'm here today with Jan Elias Burke, who's the debut author of literary spy thriller Hannah's War. She is an award-winning screenwriter and director of film and television. She has written and directed dramatic pilots for CBS, NBC, and ABC. She was the first woman to direct Miami Vice and has directed episodes of Wise Guy, 21 Jump Street, 13 Reasons Why, Parenthood, Blue Bloods, NCIS Los Angeles, and many others. Her debut feature film was Past Midnight, starring Paul Giamatti and the late Natasha Richardson. As a screenwriter, Jan has written films driven by strong female leads, including Fly Girls with Nicole Kidman and Cameron Diaz. Jan graduated from Wesleyan University and has two MFAs, one from the Yale School of Drama and Directing and one from Warren Wilson in Fiction. A native New Yorker, Jan currently lives in New York City. Welcome, Jan. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for writing Hannah's War, which was, oh my gosh, entertaining and exciting and all of it. Thank you. It was Thank awesome. you. I loved writing it. <laughs> I really did. It was one of the best experiences of my creative life. Wow. Yeah. That's saying a lot because yeah. you've had quite a creative life. Yes. And <laughs> it was very different and unexpected. And I just loved it. Well, first of all, tell listeners, what is Hannah's War about? So Hannah's War started with a very, very tiny inspiration, but but kind of an amazing story that I read in the New York Times on the headline on the day that we bombed Hiroshima, read Truman vows reign of ruin, atomic bomb explodes. And in that issue of the New York Times, they they basically had to explain the whole history of this project because it had all been developed in secret. And under the fold, I saw a paragraph that said that the key component that allowed the Allies to develop the bomb was brought to us by a female non-Aryan physicist. And that was the Times' way of saying Jewish which they couldn't say at the time. And I read that and I thought, well, how how is it possible that I haven't heard of this woman? Who is it? And she's clearly critical to this, to the atomic bomb. And yet there was no name, nothing. It was just that sentence. And it sent me into basically 10 years of research. Wow. Not to find her. Once I understood that she was a, that there was this woman, I actually found her fairly easily. But she's one of these women who had done amazing things, who had been erased from history. She had been working in Germany with a male partner, an Aryan partner, 
And she had been told by everybody she worked with as Hitler was rising in power that she would be protected and she would be fine because she was working at this high level of research. And it, it, was, it was fascinating to me because as they were just on the verge of splitting the atom, but it had, they hadn't done it yet, Austria was annexed and she had to flee within six hours. And then I discovered that her partner, Otto Hahn, he couldn't work without her. And so he met with her in secret in Sweden where, where she fled. And he and they would plan experiments and he would go back to Germany and he would do them. And he couldn't he couldn't understand the results of the experiment without her because that's how they worked together. He would he would do the chemical part and she would do the radiographic analysis and the mathematics and figure out what had actually happened. And so she was the one who figured out that they had split the atom, which was the key to all nuclear energy, both good and bad, you know, to light up cities, to take us to the moon, and to potentially destroy the world. So he published the papers about the experiment and because he lived in Germany, we can either be charitable or we can be really mean about him. If you're charitable, you say, well, he would have ruined his career if he had put her name on the papers because she was Jewish. And if you had a Jewish name on a paper, it was immediately discredited by the Germans. Or you can say he knew that if he left her off, that he would basically get credit for what had happened himself. And in the end, I think we have to end up sort of adopting that theory because he won the Nobel Prize for this very discovery, and he did not mention her name. I mean, that doesn't sound charitable. No. <laughs> and worse than that, she was sitting at the ceremony, and I read in her diaries she was waiting for him to give her some kind of acknowledgement because they were friends. I mean, they had worked together for 20 years. Nothing. The Nobel Prize Committee was also quite misogynist because afterwards, and we're getting way away know, from yeah, the yeah. story of the book, but afterwards about, I think, 60 scientists lobbied for her to get credit because they all knew that it really was more her discovery than his. And they just said, nope. Nope, we made our decision, and that's that. So this woman became the inspiration for Hannah's War in the sense that I immediately thought, you have a woman who's experienced what it is to be working and thinking you're finding truth, right? I mean, what is a great scientist? A great scientist is an artist, they're going to go wherever the experiment takes you. They need to know what's, what's at the bottom of matter. You know, how is human energy composed? And, and yet she's sitting there and she's seeing that her science, which is so pure and beautiful, becomes militarized because the Nazis actually came in and they took over the research institute where she was working. And then I thought, if she's at Los Alamos, where you have the same thing, you have all of these scientists 
But now it's right in the open. They've all been brought there by Oppenheimer and the United States military. And they're actually on a base, which looks like a concentration camp, surrounded by barbed wire. And they are both trying to find out how to create a bomb. And at the same time, they're being spied on. The military is keeping their in barracks. They're being fed, you know, terrible food. And, and so somebody who's had that experience already in Germany of understanding what discrimination is and how science can become a weapon is in a very, very, very interesting position sitting in Los Alamos and essentially seeing it all happen again, but supposedly for a good cause. So it was such a rich environment for the things that I care about, for moral gray areas, for, you know, people engaged in one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century that is going to change the world. And yet there's just, there's a shadow over it too, because when I saw a wonderful documentary that interviewed a lot of the scientists that they were they were quite old. I think very few of them are still alive, but but they all talked about what it was like when they actually tested the bomb. And one of them said something like, you know, I knew that VE Day had happened. And in my mind, I guess I knew that Hitler and the Germans didn't have the bomb. And everything I know about myself says that I should have turned around and walked out and never looked back. And I didn't because I had to know if it was going to work. And that dilemma and that level of complexity just, it just floored me. And, And I felt like this is a world that I have to, that I have to explore and I have to explore it in a way from a woman's point of view because I think it's a very male world. And she herself, the actual scientist, Lisa Meitner, had very, had a real moral compass that I think a lot of these men sort of lost in the process of their discoveries. So, Wow. So, so <laughs> we can see why it's such a powerful story. I mean, that's like riveting just to listen to. Well, thank you. I mean, what ended up happening, I certainly didn't come on all of this, you know, in two seconds. I found her, and then right. I started to realize, oh, well, if I'm going to start to tell her story, I have to understand the history of the bomb and the physics that created it. And then I dove into that research, and as I discovered more and more, it's like the story took on layers. And instead of being a a linear, straightforward story, it became this just like kind of like the bomb itself, you know, this tiny explosive core and then all of these layers that, that, you know, that were sort of put on the outside. But still explodes in the end. I mean, it's a pretty explosive story, I think. And have you always been interested in this period of time or was it just this woman that made you delve deep? Like, have you always been a historian of... 
Well, I had, as a a writer-director, I had actually written a story about the women air service pilots Mm -hmm. in World War II. And so I had been a part of of researching that time period before from a very different perspective. A much more sort of heroic story, you know, with fewer gray areas for sure, although there was sexism and misogyny and all of that. But I think that I've always been interested in what I call the the tears in the fabric of society. Where are things broken? Where are things jagged? You know, is it is it is it race? Is it you know this unhealed story of you know of slavery or in this case, I mean there were two issues. There was sort sort of the the disappeared woman but also, I don't really think we've ever reckoned with the bomb. I mean, we created it and then sort of put it away and said, God, we hope we never have to use it again. But every time there's a political flare-up, you know, suddenly the the bomb is there with us again. And it's like Iran and Iraq. I mean, it keeps it, it keeps coming up. And then there was one other thing that really interested me, which was, and it was personal, about World War II, my father fought in the war. And he was, he was a naval officer. I mean, he didn't, you know, his, his big war story was that he threw up 13 times on the boat to Hawaii. So, you know, but he changed his name. And I always wondered why. And I talked to him and he said that, in fact, when he got out of the war, he had a very hard time getting a job. And he talked about all of the professions that were closed to him, that were closed to Jews. Banking, the high echelons of the law, advertising. And so I I thought, I hadn't really thought about anti-Semitism as a present thing until I heard those stories from my dad. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's serious. And so it made me think about sort of that, too, as kind of an unsolved tear in in our fabric. What did he change his name from and to? Well, it's kind of funny, actually, because his last name was Eliasberg, right? And he begged his father to change the last name. And his father was one of the founding members of Mount Sinai Hospital, which is a Jewish hospital. And his father was like, no. You know, I'm proud of our name. We're, you know, and and his whole, you know, medical career was built on the fact that he had founded this wonderful Jewish hospital. He founded it because the other hospitals didn't take Jews. I'm on the board there, by the way. Oh, could, well. Yeah, there we go. Anyway. So there is actually, I think they still give it out. There's a prize in his name. Hmm. He was the head of anesthesiology and he never lost a patient. So he was very proud of being... Jewish. And so what my father did was he ended up changing his his first name. He was named Joshua Abraham Eliasberg, and he changed Joshua Abraham to J. Hmm. Did that help? Not really, because (laughs) I said, Dad, you know, you're still Eliasberg, and like, it's not, you're not hiding anything from anybody. But it was his it wasn't the name change in my mind that was significant. It was the desire to be other. 
than who he was. And what job did he end up getting? He was the vice president of research for CBS television in the end. And he was just fine. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't crying any tears for him. (laughs) But it, it was still an interesting period. And what I ended up discovering in the course of this research was that there was there's a really good case to be made that anti-Semitism started in America and Hitler actually appropriated it from us. And I'll tell you why that sounds like a big thing. But Henry Ford, Ford Motor Company, published The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a discredited book, but very, very, it's the basis of anti-Semitism, really. And Hitler credited Henry Ford by name in Mein Kampf Mm. and said that he had really developed his whole philosophy as a result of Henry Ford's work. So there there was a bond between the United States and Germany that also hasn't really been hasn't seen the light of day, I think. Mm-hmm. And I investigate that in the book. Do you watch the TV show Succession by any chance? I certainly do. <laughs> do I just watched the episode last night when they were talking about, when they were interviewing the anchor and they were like, have you read Mein Kampf? And he's like, just a few times. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And he has the dog name. Yeah, Blond- dog named Blondie, Blondie right? like, different spelling. Different yeah. spelling, yes. <laughs> and, and didn't he, he honeymooned at Hitler's cottage, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that show. Yeah, it's so funny. In fact, my ringtone is the succession is it really? theme song. Oh my song. gosh. I That's love it so that yeah, much. I'm currently in a, an obsession of that. It's losing a, sleep over that show at the it's moment. It's an amazing, <laughs> amazing show. So speaking of shows, as they relate to books, you have spent your whole career up till now in the TV and movie world. And this is your first book. Yes, why now? Why write this as a book? And I know you've already adapted it to a screenplay. Yes. Why go to this step? Like, why take this step? Why take a step into publishing and not just write the screenplay? Okay, so I hope you understand this. You're from New York, right? Yes. I'm from New York. If you grew up in New York in a sort of intellectual family, to be a writer is to write a novel. I mean, that's it. You write the great American novel. That's, that's the dream. And so I always had this idea that I would write a novel. But I got into acting in high school. I was very dramatic. I ended up directing, which it just made a lot of sense for my personality. It brought together a lot of the intellectual things that interested me and the visual things and, of course, working with actors And that was a very organic evolution. And I ended up going to Yale Drama School. And, you know, I might have stayed in the theater. I think if I had, I went to England, I went to London. And I I think if I had stayed there, I was offered a job there, but I was very, very young. And I just wasn't ready to live in London. I was was too homesick. But I think that the the vibrancy of the theater there would have been very satisfying to me. But I came back and I sort of realized that theater wasn't vital in the way that it was in England. This, remember, this, mm-hmm. is, yes. this is before Hamilton. This is long before Hamilton. So I thought, well, I should experiment with film. And I kind of fell in love with film. And... I started directing, and, and I, I think that sexism had something to do with it because I wasn't, 
I was directing in the very kind of like maybe the second wave of women. There were about 10 of us. And I had a wonderful career, but there were definite parameters. Like I worked in television, but breaking through to film, impossible. I was offered, you know, to direct like kids' films, you know, like the Olsen twins or something. And I was interested in Brecht and, you know, I was interested in really serious issues. And so as I was directing television and making a wonderful living and and enjoying the creativity of it, there was a part of me that felt very unfulfilled because ultimately it was somebody else's show and it was what it was. Some were very good and some, I would look at them and I would go, oh, I I spent a month on that. Oh my God, what a waste. I mean, that's a, so, ingr- I'm not ungrateful. I'm very <laughs> grateful for my time as a television director, very grateful. But I did feel like there was a large part of me, a large part of my creative life that was not being tapped. And so I kept sort of dipping my toe in. So I applied to graduate school. I applied to get an MFA in fiction. And I thought, well, if I'm accepted, you know, then that'll mean maybe I'm a writer. Maybe I'm a writer. I could write. And I was accepted. So I went to graduate school, and I had wonderful teachers. And I started writing a different novel. And I had a lot of great support. And then I got out of graduate school, and, you know, I was offered all these television shows, and... But I really wanted to write, and so I sort of found this compromise. And I thought, okay, I'll write screenplays. Because then Mm -hmm. I can write the screenplay, I can attach myself to direct, and then I'll get all of it, the whole thing. And so I did. I wrote screenplays, some of them absolutely terrific, all of them with female leads. And not a one of them went to get made, mostly because they had female leads. And the story of the women air service pilots, for example, had Cameron Diaz and Nicole Kidman attached to star. So if you have, they were the biggest stars in the world at that time. And I thought, if that can't get made, I'm just barking up the wrong tree. Mm -hmm. And that kind of pushed me toward the idea of writing something else. And I had to move back to New York to do it because as long as I was in L.A. and I kept getting job offers, I took them. And it wasn't until I came to New York that I thought, maybe I can create this, this safe space and the quiet to actually do something that really is my own. It's a lot scarier to sit down and write a novel than it is to sit down and write a screenplay. I mean, screenplays are very hard, but once once you've broken the story, once you've figured out, you know, basically what the arc of the story is, it took me about three weeks or a month to write a first draft. Wow. Now, then you layer it and you right, do right, right. revision after revision after revision. How long did it take to do the first draft of Hannah's War? Seven months. Okay. I mean, th- which is very quick. It is. It, actually, it is. I mean, I know it's very quick. Mm-hmm. But that was partly because I knew the story so, so, mm-hmm. so well by the time I sat down to write it, mm-hmm. because I had outlined it, because I had so much research mm-hmm. at my fingertips. And also because I think I had sort of 
gotten my chops from writing on deadline. You know, yeah. you write for a television show, you sit down and it's just got to be done, you know, sometimes over a weekend. So I had sort of done my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours or whatever. But yeah, so that's that's how it happened. And so how does it feel? Now you finally have your intellectual novel, you're here <laughs> back in New York. You did it. What? How do you feel? I'm like... On how can I say this without every cliche in the book? You can I mean, use cliches. I'm, I'm it's fine. walking on water. I'm. Fl- I mean, I'm so elated. Aww. I. It's everything I wanted. It's everything I dreamed. That's I mean, so nice. When I sat down to write the book, I had to say to myself, "If this doesn't sell, I'm going to be proud that I did it." That was the way I sort of I, because I really I I thought if I don't write this book. I will feel that I've let myself down. So to some extent, I felt like, okay, so if I write it, that's a win. That's a triumph. And going into it with that expectation was wonderful because it wasn't at all about who's going to care, am I going to sell it? But it was really just about the processing. And, And that's probably partly why I loved the process so much because it was very pure. And then not only did I sell it, but I sold it in a bidding war. And I sold it to Little Brown, which is a, you know, that's not self-publishing. That's <laughs> like that's like one of the best possible labels. And this extraordinary editor, Judy Klein. Mm-hmm. And then I have to say, I just felt I was, I've been treated with such respect. Writers in Hollywood are not generally... In television, they're treated better than in film. But, you know, I've been consulted about everything. And it's just such a great feeling. And it's, you know, kind of what I've been, yeah, what I envisioned all my life, what I hoped for. So now that you've gotten to this stage, what advice would you have for younger authors? Or maybe going back to your younger self when you were just graduating? What advice would you have? That's a good question. Part of me thinks go with your instincts and the other part of me the stronger advice I think is in order to write you really do have to have something to write about that you really are passionate about and that the experience you get on the way is worth every moment that you spend so for example I could say oh well you know I wasted all this time, but I don't feel that way at all because I feel like every single thing I directed was sharpening my visual sense or those shows that I would watch and go, oh my God, why why did I do that? Even those, I I got to sort of hear what bad dialogue (laughs) sounds like. You know, shows where like Mm -hmm. the person comes in and they explain to another person what they already know, you know, because the writer can't figure out how to, like, hide the exposition. And and so I figured out how to hide the exposition because I would hear that kind of dialogue and I would think that's not the way people talk to each other, <laughs> you know. I, I, you just don't come in and announce, like, what you've just discovered, you know, like, so, so every single thing that I've done, I feel contributed to the book. 
and even in the sense that the cover, they, you know, they showed me a cover, which was beautiful, but it was like every other historical fiction cover. It was a woman mm-hmm. in silhouette. I was going to say, yeah, I can Walking away <laughs> from, the, from the reader towards something, <laughs> some kind of misty, I don't know, is it Auschwitz? Is it a scientific laboratory? Is it Berlin? Is it Paris? And, and I looked at it and I thought, you know, this is wonderful. It certainly signals what the book is, the genre and everything. But this book is about a nuclear physicist. Like, if people look at this cover, are they really going to be prepared for this woman who is, I mean, she's she's a wonderful heroine, but she's guarded and she's mysterious and she's really smart. And she's got a kind of a, almost a barbed sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I don't know that this cover really sums up all the complexity of the book. And I was very hesitant because I thought, well, I'm a debut novelist, you know. But I talked to Judy, and she said, oh, I'm totally open, you know. Send me inspirations. So because I'm a director, I actually could do that, you know. I I could find pictures. I could find other book covers. I just put together a Pinterest board of all the inspirations, and I sent them to Judy, And she didn't say anything. She just passed them on to the designer. And then I opened a, I was in FedEx, and I opened a little email that was the new cover, and I gasped out loud because it was everything that I had sent but made personal by the designer. And the cover, for people listening, is the bottom half off to the side of a woman's face with bright red lipstick and pearl earrings, pearl necklace, dark outfit and then Jan's name in bright red to match the lipstick and then what's probably supposed to be Adams floating everywhere. Well, you know... But I'm making that up. That, that's what I thought immediately, this is, that they were Adams. But they also are gold mm-hmm. and they actually flash in the light. Mm. And so there's a feeling Ooh, of... Oh, yeah, they of, do. Look at that. <laughs> there's a feeling of Gustav Klimt. Very cool. And Klimt was one of my inspirations. Love it. And then there's a background that's sort of black and dark blue and a little bit green that always feels to me when I look at it like a like a chalkboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of distressed a little bit. And so there's a it captures the mystery of of the book in a way that makes me very, very happy. And it's sensuous, too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an alluring cover. It just sort of makes you want to go, ooh, ooh. Totally. So, yeah, me too. So things like that. It's like, you know, if I hadn't done all of those those lookbooks for for Mm -hmm. films that I've directed, I wouldn't wouldn't know how to put together inspirations for a cover design. So I think that's my, I think that's my advice is... Every single thing that you do is part of the process, as long as you can keep the attitude that it is part of the process and that it's taking you, it can take you where you want to go. You just have to be alive to when things align. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for your great book. And thank you. Can't wait to hear what happens in the next installment. I think you're working on a sequel. I am, actually. So that's going to be amazing. <laughs> All right, I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. Having read the book, which character do you think that the sequel might follow? Oh, my goodness. I don't I mean, I don't know. Were you, who were you left with questions about? I mean, I feel like I had questions about everybody. Okay. <laughs> what about the woman in the beginning who was dating the one who called everybody Jewish slaves? Oh, Ulrike. Mm -hmm. Yes. She appears in the sequel. Okay. She is not she is not the star of the sequel, but she appears in it, and so does her well, I shouldn't this is a bit of a spoiler, but so the sequel is actually Hannah's cousin. Sabine. Sabine. Oh, I should have said that. Um, That's obviously. Because yes. she disappears probably a third of the way through the yeah, book. I should have said that. And she's a real, she's... She's like a firecracker. She is really feisty, yeah. and she is really, I mean, she is determined to mm -hmm. challenge everything that she believes is unjust. And so I, I wanted to know what happens to, yeah. to her. And she ends up having a very interesting journey. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Lauren Passell and her innovative PR company, Tink, for sponsoring today's episode. Please check them out at tinkmedia.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Mm -hmm.